So this month, we will be taking a summer hiatus from our Romans series, which we will return to, but uh, right now we'll be diving into the book of Jeremiah for five weeks. And Jeremiah is this fascinating and significant book of scriptures. It records the life and the ministry and the prophecies of Jeremiah, of course, who served in the period of Israel's history leading into the exile and during the beginning of that exile. What we call exile is being when they're forced out of their homeland, forced to live in foreign lands. Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian empire and the city and the temple were plundered and burned and thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles, a minority, in, in, surrounded by a new culture and new gods. And if you're like me, then when you think of the storyline of the Bible, the exile might not loom as large as certain other things. But that's not the case for the Jewish people or for God. In fact, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah, God says that deliverance from the exile will replace deliverance from Egypt as the most significant marker of God's salvation of his people. He says, so I'm, you know, I'm sure we all think of the Exodus as significant. I mean, they had the Passover feast, right? Which they did year after year. And Jeremiah says, this is going to top that. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said as the Lord lives, who brought us, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt in the Exodus, right? But instead it will be said as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the North country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. That is out of the exile. He actually says this twice in this book, once in chapter 16 and once in chapter 23. In other words, it's a big deal. It is incredibly significant. And it has significance that stretches beyond its immediate context because it points to the reality of the story of humanity as a whole. Jeremiah's ministry to the people is essentially declaring to them what got them into this mess, how they wound up in exile. But he's also declaring hope. What hope is there for living in exile? What hope is there for getting home? These are the same questions that the Bible as a whole is answering. How did we wind up in this mess? And is there a way home? Our whole race is in exile. Since our first father and mother were banished from the garden, where they were at home, at peace, with a few conditions that were ultimately just one, to trust and obey their maker, God. But they didn't. So Adam and Eve were exiled from their home. And it was the beginning of the exile that we all share. And God's people of Israel, him calling them, was his beginning, his plan of redemption, of restoration, of homecoming for humanity. They are brought to the promised land, if you remember, with a covenant that they must obey. To, that they will dwell secure in this land. They will be God's people and he will be their God. But they too forsake God and they are exiled from their blessed home with God. So Israel's Babylonian exile is, is a one more potent picture of something that is endemic to the human story. This lacking and longing for a true home. Alienation from where we really belong, from God. Even when things are good, 
in this world. It is in the midst of this bigger context of a broken world of tension and tragedy and frustration and fear. We are all in exile. And we continue to contribute to the corruption that always leads to exile. We ache for the hope of home. So the confrontations of Jeremiah are applicable beyond his immediate context. And so is the hope that he offers. And he offers a great hope. Jeremiah points to the hope that God will send a righteous king. One who will deliver us from exile once and for all. And we know this king, don't we? The one who himself wandered without a place to lay his head. The one who had compassion on those who had no place to belong. Several centuries after Jeremiah, Jesus of Nazareth taught that he is the way. The way where? The way out of exile. The way home. The way to God. Jesus' love was greater than all of our rebellion. And in him, the lasting return home has begun. This is why we are sojourners, the Bible calls us, and citizens of heaven. We are yet in Babylon, but we see its end. We are wanderers in waiting for our true king to come and renew this world into his and our lasting true home. This is why we'll be studying Jeremiah this month. It's going to be great. It will be a blessing, but it will not always be lighthearted and breezy. It really can't be because that's exactly what God through Jeremiah chastises the leaders for doing. He calls out the prophets and the priests and the kings again and again for healing his people's wounds lightly. He's saying, my people have these gaping wounds and you're slapping a tiny little bandaid on them. They're bleeding out and festering and you're patting them on the back with a saying, cheer up. These wounds can't be healed lightly. They need a heavy healing. Which is what I've titled this series through Jeremiah. Heavy healing. Our wounds need significant surgery. And God intends to provide it. It begins with the heaviness of exile in this story. But even that is not enough. That, that king who will bring his people home, Christ Jesus, he provides the heaviest of all healings. He will heal his people with the most significant, the most costly of all procedures. Our wounds needed to be healed by his wounds. Our peace comes through his bearing of the penalty. Our heart needed purified by his spirit. We do not need light healing that makes us feel good and enables us in our denial and our degradation. We need a heavy healing that cuts deep to the heart and actually offers hope Amen. and change and peace. This is what God offers us in Jeremiah. By word count, this is actually the longest book in the Bible. So we won't be going through it verse by verse like we have been doing with Romans. We'll be looking at five important aspects of Jeremiah. First, today, what led to exile? This is something that Jeremiah spends a, lot, a great deal of time on. What is leading up to this? The next, next week, how do we live in, in exile? After that, we'll see the hope in the midst of exile and beyond it. And then we'll look at Jeremiah's life himself as a life of faithfulness in a hard time. And lastly, we'll understand how suffering and even evil fits into God's plan and purposes. So these five messages, these are the five messages from Jeremiah. What led to exile, how to live in exile, hope, 
of the new covenant, Jeremiah's life of faithfulness, and God's sovereignty over evil. And we'll look at several texts in Jeremiah each week. So let's dive in. Turn to Jeremiah 7, if you have it, uh, your Bible with you. And we'll be uh, reading verses 1 through 11. So just starting at the beginning of that chapter, Jeremiah 7. And it says this. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So in that passage that we just read, Jeremiah is standing at the gates of the temple and giving this prophetic sermon, and he's calling for repentance at the central place of worship, where the people are saying this rep repetitive slogan, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And now to understand what's going on here, it's, it's important for us to know the context of Jeremiah, because at the beginning of Jeremiah, we're told that he was called to be a prophet when Josiah was king. That's an important point, because do you remember who Josiah is and what he did? Josiah was that boy king with the good heart. He was eight years old when he took the throne. And when he turned 20, he began a reform movement, tirelessly purging the kingdom of idolatry. It took him years before he even got to fixing up the temple. Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, had been one of the worst kings they'd ever had. He was the worst in, in God's eyes anyway. He was quite successful in his own way successful at being wicked. And he served for 55 years. That's a lot of wickedness. And Second Chronicles says of him, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So he, Manasseh, he, was, he had this brief period of repentance at the end of his life after he was captured by the king of Babylon. But then his son Ammon became king and which, uh, which is, this Ammon is Josiah's dad, and he incurred more guilt, it says, and he was so bad he ended up getting assassinated by his own servants just a few years into his reign. So then his son, his young son, Josiah, our king of interest, he takes the throne as a youngster. And early on, 
His heart is like his ancestor David's. He pursues God the best he knows how, without much guidance, without any godly examples, and without the scriptures, because they had been abandoned and lost. But his heart and his common sense knew one thing for sure, that the altars and the images to other gods had to go along with their priests. It took him six years. And during that time is when Jeremiah was called to be a prophet, who was also a very young man at the time. And after those six years of purification, King Josiah finally gets around to repairing the temple of Yahweh, the temple of the Lord, which the former kings had let fall into disrepair. And as they're doing these repairs, a priest named Hilkiah, he's, he's rummaging around, getting things in place, and he finds this dusty old scroll. And he opens it up, and it's the, the, the book of the law of the Lord, the scriptures, probably the book we call Deuteronomy. And Hilkiah, the priest, is ecstatic, and he takes the scroll to King Josiah, and he, Josiah reads it. And he's so sad about all the things they haven't been doing. He tears his clothes and he takes action. He gathers all of the people. And the Chronicles say that to all the people, both great and small, he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandment and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. Wow. We read that with such hope and joy. And it must have been exciting and, and inspiring for King Josiah and for Jeremiah as well. Because I mean, Jeremiah, so Hilkiah, the priest who found that dusty old book of De Deuteronomy, that was Jeremiah's dad. Jeremiah had been preaching on behalf of God for five years at this point. It must have seemed like such progress, right? This is everything they'd hoped for, were working for. People are worshiping at the temple once again. They, had, they even had a Passover feast for the first time in ages. They had, uh, it, it was exciting and it was dramatic, this change. Josiah's reforms, Jer Jeremiah's preaching, Two very young men on fire for the Lord, seeing a nation change before their eyes. And the, the, this reform of worship, inspired by the rediscovery of Deuteronomy, it sheds light on some of the things Jeremiah uh, said, like his famous Old Roads sermon in Jeremiah 6, where he says, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your soul. He's saying, ask for the ancient paths and walk in them like that dusty old book. This is the message that's, that it's a message spurring them on to continued faithfulness to the old law of God that Josiah had made public again. Walk in the ancient paths and find rest for your soul. This is what Jeremiah called the people to. And it seemed like it was going to happen. King Josiah had done some incredible things to help reform the nation. But that famous old road sermon that Jeremiah preached takes a turn as he continues. We saw how he called the people to walk in the good way and find rest. Well, the next verse says, but they said, we will not walk in it. 
I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. So what happened? It all seemed so promising. King Josiah did all that he possibly could. But a mere human king can't change hearts. Though the outward changes were momentous, the inner changes were momentary. And Jeremiah sees that the people's hearts are still desperately sick. In Jeremiah 3.10, God says, Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. In chapter 4, he uses the analogy of getting dressed up all fancy. And he says, in vain do you beautify yourself. They were coming to the temple as King Josiah declared. They did away with foreign idols and such. They were even offering sacrifices and even rejoiced in this renewal. Saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But God said all of it was a pretense. Meaning a facade. They were in the right place doing and saying the right things, but their hearts were not right. Josiah's reforms were important. They were, but not sufficient for what religion is supposed to be. It's not about appearances and places and slogans or even outlawing evil. What it's really about is integrity of life and genuine love, wholehearted obedience, compassionate mercy, faith, and faithfulness. So God sends Jeremiah to the temple to stand out front and give this public sermon. It's the one that we read at the beginning of this message in Jeremiah 7. He says, don't trust in those deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They are of no avail without a whole heart. Will you go out and live as though I have no claim on your life and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing these abominations? Has my house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers, he asks? Don't get me wrong. It's not like Jeremiah didn't care about the reforms of King Josiah. He loved Josiah and the work that he did. Chronicles is careful to report that when Josiah died, Jeremiah gave a public poem of lament on his behalf. He loved him. Jeremiah cared about the reform of the temple. But such a reform can be used, and this is important, it can be used for good or for evil. It can be used as a great opportunity for the flourishing of faith. Or it can be used as a front and a cover for wickedness to continue incognito. That's why he uses that image of a den of robbers. What's a robber's den? If you think about that image, it's where they retreat after doing their robberies. You know, they go out and do bad things and they come back to their den for safety and security. And Jeremiah is saying, that's how the temple is being used. He's saying, you spend all week out in the world doing what you want, taking advantage of others, disregarding God, cursing those who get in the way of your selfish desires. And then you come here where things are nice and tidy and good and you play pretend. It's your robber's den. And you may recognize that phrase from another famous sermon. About 600 years later. Our Lord Jesus channeled Jeremiah when he entered the temple less than a week before he was killed. And he confronted religious leaders in Jerusalem. And he's saying the same kind of religious pretense is still going on. And he's come here to put a stop to it. 
Jesus acted uncharacteristically severe in that case, if you remember, flipping over people's tables where they were selling and trading, chasing them out of the place. And in particular, he, he, he singled out those that were uh, the sellers of pigeons, the text tells us. The pigeons were the offering of the poor. Jesus sees how this corrupt and uh, facade of worship has led to disregard of God, of the true ways of God, which are to care for the poor and the, and the, the powerless and the outcast. But instead they're exploiting them and taking advantage of them. And Jesus stands up for them and he stands up for his father who will not be used as a cover for wrongdoing. Jesus says, my house is to be called a house of prayer for all peoples. He's pointing to how they've obscured the actual point of religion, which is communion with God. Jesus cares about the purity of worship. Jesus is not mild when he gives his Jeremiah-like message, when he cleanses the temple. He's fierce and bold. He wants people to listen up and wants us to listen up. But he's not being mean. He's being merciful because he knows, he sees how, how foolish people can be. That many of these people that he confronts, they were using worshiper, these worshipers as an opportunity for gain, for some kind of worldly gain, whether status or money. They were using God rather than being used by God. And Jesus says, you're getting it exactly backwards from the way it ought to be. And because of that, you're undermining any benefit that you or blessing that you would long for. You're cutting off the branch you're sitting on. Because if you notice how Jeremiah talked about this in his temple, he said, if you do not go after other uh, gods to your own harm, both Jeremiah and Jesus know that when we, that we hurt ourselves when we are not aligned with him. Right. And even at Jesus's most severe in this scene, he's acting in love both to defend those that are being taken advantage of and being disregarded and to lead to repentance. Those who are making shipwreck of their own souls by their godless self-centeredness. And if you read the gospel of Matthew's account of this, you can see that he's still the Jesus of radical compassion that we know and love because right after this dramatic and harsh and intense scene, what does he do? He welcomes blind people and lame people to himself and he heals them right in the same place where he just overturned tables. Jesus's intensity is because he wants us to really live rather than just sleepwalk. Both he and Jeremiah want to wake us up to God's reality and glory and authority to shake us out of our slumber of self-centeredness and to knock the distractions and pragmatism out of our hands and lift our eyes to something greater he wants us to be a people of wonder and of welcome because he knows that this is the place of our blessedness and God's glory. But these people aren't living awake to the presence of God among them. So Jeremiah challenges them by saying, you're making a good show of religion, but your everyday life is rotten. And one question I have about that is, is why? <laughs> why are they doing this? Are they intentionally trying to fool God and, and fool the people around him? Maybe trying to trick God into blessing them by their show of religion? I, I, maybe some of them, uh, but I doubt most of them are thinking that way. I do. I think that they're simply sleepwalking. 
They're just surface level people who are conditioned to think only of these outward appearances. They saw an impressive social reform and they thought that was it. And my concern is that it is becoming increasingly true of Christians in our day as well. In our present culture, image, the image one portrays is everything. And the actual substance of one's life is insignificant. Just one poignant example of this ought to be mentioned. In light of Roe v. Wade being overturned, we would be wise to take the story of Josiah to heart. Kings and their dictates are important and good when they're aimed at true justice. They are, just like Josiah's reforms, but they're not enough. They can become surface-level rhetoric without genuine God-honoring hearts. They can, saying life, life, can become just like Jerusalem saying the temple, the temple. And notice how Jeremiah called those words deceptive. How are they deceptive? It really is the temple of the Lord. How is that deceptive? It's deceptive because it lulls people into complacency, thinking because they say it, they're automatically aligned with God and with justice when their actual day-to-day lives do not reflect it. We must be humble enough to beware of this. I don't think people are being, these people are being deliberately deceptive as much as they're being deliberately deceived. The devil is a liar and has crafted a culture of incredible, that is incredibly shallow, that loves appearances and perception, but cares little for depth and reality. But portraying an image without substantial reality of life undergirding it is deception. Our shallowness also loves, it, it loves the new just because it's new, but it isn't so much concerned with a long commitment, a beginning without a follow through, but that's short-sighted foolishness. In commenting on this passage, Eugene Peterson used an illustration of a, of a, a wedding versus a marriage, which I think is in, incredibly right because King Josiah's reforms were like a wedding, but Jeremiah was concerned with the marriage Because in marriage, we work out in every detail of life, the promises and commitments spoken at the wedding. In marriage, we develop the long and rich life of faithful love that the wedding announces. The event of the wedding without the life of marriage doesn't amount to much. It hardly matters, he says, if the man and woman dress up in their wedding clothes and reenact the ceremony every anniversary and say, I'm married, I'm married, I'm married. If there's no daily love shared, No continuing tenderness, no attentive listening, no creative blessing. And we all know the statistics, don't we? Our culture values weddings, but it does not value marriages. And the analogy holds when it comes to religion. We celebrate the victory of Josiah, but we ignore the message of Jeremiah. We want a nice wedding with God, but not the day in, day out marriage relationship with him. And this temple sermon from Jeremiah proclaims a message that we don't want to hear, but we need to hear. That religion is not automatically pleasing to God. Nor are good things in general, doing good things. And this is such an important point. Jeremiah says this thing a few times throughout his his book uh, about how the people swear as the Lord lives, but they swear it falsely. Saying as the Lord lives was like how people at the time added weight to a promise or an oath. Kind of like we say, God is my witness today. But the thing is, those powerful words, which they are when spoken truly, they became empty. 
Because although they would say it, as the Lord lives, they would not actually live like the Lord is living. Because if he lives, if the Lord lives, he is living and active and present. He is attentive. And this is something that God stresses throughout Jeremiah. He says again and again, I have been watching. I have listened. I have paid attention. Nothing you do is going unnoticed. And the Lord, he doesn't have the luxury of ignorance. He cannot enjoy its so-called bliss. We humans can be fooled by people's flattery. We can believe that the masks people wear are who they really are. But God cannot be fooled or flattered. He sees the heart. And he cannot be pleased with false piety. If you swear as the Lord lives, then live like you believe it. I have been consistently surprised at people's ability to live out of sync with what they claim to believe. To live incongruously without recognizing it. When, for instance, when I give counsel to people to forgive, I often hear back rather quickly, oh, I have forgiven them. But I just... And somehow people have this notion of forgiveness that means almost nothing. <laughs> because they'll be sitting there with apparent bitterness toward this person, claiming they've forgiven them. They will be actively avoiding them, cutting them out of their life and claiming they've forgiven them. It's a very strange phenomenon to me. Just imagine if Jesus forgave that way. If Jesus said, I forgive you, I just don't want anything to do with you. Or if he said, I forgive you, but secretly he's fuming to the father. Would that forgiveness mean anything to you? No, you definitely couldn't build a world-changing religion on it. That's not what we treasure about Christ. He really forgives. And it's his kind of forgiveness that we are called to. But that's just one example. Here's another one that's always stuck with me. I used to know a young woman who spent money frivolously and was chronically discontent with what she had, always spending money she didn't need to. And one day I see she has a tattoo of a Bible reference, Hebrews 13.5. I say, oh, that's cool. Well, what's that? What's that verse say? She says, it says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I say, oh, that's a beautiful promise. I was thinking about it later that day and I, I looked it up in my Bible. Let me read you the whole verse. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I just couldn't get over how she completely left out the first half of the verse when he addressed the very behavior that was so evident in her life. That promise that she cherished in this superficial, spiritualized way was actually being brought in by the author of Hebrews to make people content with what they have. It was a promise with a purpose to actually affect your life. But she was just like the people saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, without it affecting your life. Jesus also calls us to not be anxious because we trust him. But then we get in our car after church and immediately start worrying about something. Some of you are tuning me out right now to worry about something. <laughs> and we just say, that's a normal part of modern life. Now, we all face anxiety, and not all of it is a sin. I'm not exempt, but what I've noticed is this growing, growing resignation to it. Giving into it, like it's just a part of who we are. It, it, even using it as an excuse for other wrongdoing. Like irritability. It can't be used as an excuse. It's not even allowed. 
And this is all while claiming to trust Jesus. But what kind of trust is that? Probably most significant though, Jesus famously calls us to love. Doesn't he? And that's what he's famous for. Again and again, the grand defining mark of our lives is to be loved. And then we spend time bickering and complaining about people, judging them, looking down on them, dismissing them, even hating them. And sometimes we're so bold and ignorant as to do this in the name of Christianity. Husbands come and worship the one who laid down his life for his bride. And they go home and speak harshly to their wives. Or wives come and worship the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself in love. And then they go home and contemptuously roll their eyes towards their husbands. We have a profound capacity for living out of alignment with what we believe. But Jesus' love is to be our love. His peace, our peace. His forgiveness, our forgiveness. His life, our life. His spirit, our spirit. I believe God speaks through Jeremiah to us today to wake us up to the discontinuity between what we say we believe and how we live it out. In chapter two, God calls them out for this through Jeremiah. He says, how can you say I am not unclean? You say I am innocent. Surely his anger is turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. They're saying, I have not sinned and got to God. It's so clear. They're in denial. God doesn't want us to live complacent in compromise. God earnestly wants to push the gospel into every dark corner of our lives. C.S. Lewis once wrote a message in which he spoke very honestly about his own temptations. And he says, this is my endlessly recurring temptation to go down to that sea. I think St. John of the cross called God a sea. And there neither dive nor swim nor float, but only dabble. And splash, careful to not get out of my depth and holding on to the lifeline which connects me to my things temporal. Later, he describes the temptation like this in that essay. He says, our temptation is to look eagerly for the minimum that will be accepted. But he says that this perspective must exist only as an undefeated but daily resisted enemy. This idea that something in our is that this idea of something that is our own, some area on which God has no claim for he claims all because he is love and must bless. He cannot bless us unless he has us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore in love, God, he claims all. Through Jeremiah, God is trying to pry his people's fingers off of the death that they are clinging to. In love, he is demanding all of them. And he does the same to us. God wants to bless them. We see that in Jeremiah's message. I mean, he tells them in verses 5 and 7, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers. He's calling them to let true religion, true worship seep into every part of their life to shape their whole life, to live awake to the presence of God among them and to hope in his promises. He wants them back. You could see this. He's calling them. He's eager for repentance. Someone asked me why this year we've started regularly confessing our sins in worship every third week. And this is why. 
So we don't become like the people God had to send into exile. So we don't become the kind of people who are in denial about our sin and blind to it. Becoming like horses plunging headlong into battle, which is an image he gives us in chapter eight. He says, I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil saying, what have I done? Everyone turns to his own course, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. He says, God is paying attention. He's listening. He, he's wanting us to repent. But he says of his people that they have turned their own way. And when they do, they don't even say, what have I done? He describes them as not knowing how to blush. Which is such a vivid picture for not being ashamed of your wrongdoing. But he isn't just angry. As you read Jeremiah, you see this. You really see his heart in this book. God is not burdened by his people. He's burdened for his people. And again and again throughout Jeremiah, we see his eagerness for their repentance. If you skim through the first five chapters, you'll see the word return again and again. He wants them to return to him. In chapter two, you hear how heartbroken he is. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. Israel was holy to the Lord. And then in chapter three, he says, return faithless Israel for I am merciful. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord, your God return. O faithless children for I am your master. In chapter four, he says to me, you should return and do not waver and swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice and in righteousness. God wants his people with him. That's what he's after because he loves them and he calls you to return with your whole heart, not just in pretense because he loves you with his whole heart and he wants to bless you with his love. We've seen how Jeremiah, how Jesus took up the harsh words of Jeremiah in his, in the temple, but he also took up the comforting, hopeful words of this prophet as well. Remember that old road sermon that we mentioned earlier where Jeremiah says, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. Does that sound familiar? Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is saying, I'm the way that Jeremiah was pointing to. I can bring rest to your soul that can calm the discontented storm in your heart that leads you into ruin. Both Jeremiah and Jesus are saying what St. Augustine would say later, that our souls are restless until they find rest in God. You will not be at peace going your own way. God's severity is not contempt. It's compassion. He wants you. He wants you to find rest for your soul in him. And Jesus, he does not heal your wounds lightly. He wants to heal you to your core and he takes it as seriously as it possibly could be taken. He offers himself in your place. He takes your deadly wounds upon himself. His death is the heavy healing that we need. His resurrection proves the life that he has to offer. 
So stand at the roads and look and ask for the ancient path, the way that is also the truth and the life and walk in him and find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for persistently pursuing us, for wanting us and calling us, for not giving up on us, but purifying us and disciplining us and drawing us for offering us the way to rest for our souls. The way of peace and righteousness found only in your son. Thank you for his heavy healing. I pray that we live aligned with the weight of his restoration of our hearts. Give us whole hearts toward you. We pray with Jesus. Amen.